Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Amen. Amen. Wow. Praise the Lord. Thank you, team. You are blessed with some wonderful worship here, you know, right? Amen. At lunch today, David, Choi, and I were able to meet each other, and he just could not believe what a beautiful morning it was with all of you, and the worship was just uh, so spectacular, and thank you so much for your love for the Lord, uh, how the Lord is using you here in this city and beyond, and uh, so grateful to be back with you. Uh, our ministry, as you know, is called Strategic Renewal, and uh, we mentioned this last time we were here, uh, but we'd love to kind of get your Mondays started with a motivational thing. We send out an e-devotion every Monday, I think on the screen. You see a little bit about how to do that. We also have a card you can fill out at the book table. And we have a really special deal. You fill out a card, you get a free CD for those of you who are broke or cheap, all right? So uh, we want to help you out as well. Uh, but one of, there's two of them actually back there. One's called How to Handle Anxiety in Troubled Times. I know we don't have much of that going on, but you know, just in case. Uh, it was actually a message I had the privilege of preaching on uh, Tuesday night at the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, with their choir behind me, right? Uh, they got nothing on you, by the way, right? So, uh, yeah, I always say if you can't, you can't preach uh, with a Brooklyn Tabernacle choir behind you, you might as well give it up, right? You can say Mary had a little lamb and a revival breaks out. It's awesome. But uh, anyway, that's what one of them is. The other one is about prayer in the family might be helpful to you as well. And uh, I get to come back in October, as do some others. And I think uh, you see a slide there. We're doing a conference here. You may be aware of it called Stand Firm. We did it last year in Toronto at uh, Robbie Simons Church. Some of you know Robbie. Uh, this year it's going to be here. And uh, let's see, do you see the speakers there? Uh, not quite as many bald guys as I wish, but there's a few of them. Uh, anyway, this Vance Pittman guy you know, for whom we're praying, whom we love. Charlie Dates from Chicago. Mark Job, the new president of Moody Bible Institute. Crawford Loritz, whose son will be here tomorrow night. And then Robbie Simons and myself. And we might throw a guy named David Choi in if we can twist his arm. How would that be? Yeah, that would be good. So uh, anyway, there's going to be pastors and leaders coming in from all around the country. Typically, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 states. And uh, you being uh, participants here have a special discount. You can come for really dirt cheap, get the meals, enjoy all the teaching. Uh, the evening sessions will be open and free, so make a note of that. And uh, again, whatever the special code is, I think up there, you can uh, obviously use that and register ahead of time. It's going to be a great, great gathering of leaders focused on the power of prayer and a great vision for revival in our nation. And again, choir, thanks for being here. I I'm going to give a free book to any anyone who catches a choir member sleeping during my sermon. How's that? Yeah, you got you to gotta tell me where they sat, what they looked like, what time it was when they fell asleep, and you get a free book. All right, I know you won't do that, but just in case. Uh, uh, so good to have you. Take your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12 tonight. We're going to be unpacking really one verse. We'll be looking at another one. And uh, in keeping with the Awakened series, our message is titled, A Passionate Praying Heart. Would you allow me to pray one more time? 
And now, Lord, give me grace to look out, not on a crowd to be feared, but a family to be loved. Give to your servant unction, understanding, and utterance once again. Unction through the power of your spirit to preach. Understanding to make it clear. Utterance to be helpful to your people. And may Christ be honored and glorified. And may this just be a continuation of our wonderful love and adoration of you as we now, from your word, study that which you would want to impart to our hearts. For Christ's sake and glory we pray. Amen. Back when I was in college, just a couple years ago, uh, if you believe that, I have some land in Hawaii, I'll sell you. But anyway, back when I was in college, I had the privilege of being on a singing team, and we were traveling one particular early summer uh, to East Asia for a missions trip to Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan. On the way out, we were doing concerts, and there was a particular song with a missions emphasis uh, called Looking Through His Eyes. And I had the privilege of doing the solo part. It's a very evocative song. It went like this. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. A world of men who don't want you, Lord, but a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden, blur my eyes with tears of agony. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. The song went on, but that was the essence of it. And I would kneel and I'd fake a tear, you know. I mean, I was really into it. I was just wanting that to be so real to me. But knowing there needed to be something in my heart to really cause that truth to register. And on the very last day of a six-week trip of that part of the world, we were in Taiwan. We came to a Buddhist temple to visit. I saw a mom and two young children, and I'm not sure exactly what they were doing. They were throwing some pieces of wood on the ground, trying to discern Buddha's will for their life. And then I watched as, as she taught them how to bow down to this idol, to this image. And we didn't have a translator with us. We had been witnessing and sharing Christ, but, but there was no way for me to communicate with them. And my heart was just rocked with the, the brokenness and, and all the lostness we had seen on that particular tour. And I began to weep, and I, I literally did not get over it until we were well over the Pacific on our flight home later that day. And as I was on the plane that day, I said, Lord, I think I understand, seeing the world through your eyes. And I said, Lord, please call me to missions, or if you don't, let me lead a church that would be a missionary church. And God was gracious to do that in all of the ministry that I had. Uh, to, to this point, I've been to 47 countries. Some of those were airports, but I count them anyway. And, and, and just the mission's heart, much like your staff, for a world that is broken and in need. I would tell you that in those hours, there was an awakening in my heart. To see the world as Jesus sees it, to feel what he feels, to sense what he senses. And if we are going to be a people whose hearts are awakened in this year, we need those moments in our life desperately. Now, I can't take you to Taiwan tonight, but let me ask you, who do you know in your world that's living a broken, shattered life without Christ? What do you see as you drive around the streets of this great city? What happens in your heart when you read the news reports and you, you see what's going on in our land? Is, is there a fresh awakening in your heart to pray with a new passion? It's no surprise all the brokenness we see because, friends, we're at war, aren't we? There's a spiritual battle going on all around us that should move us and cause us 
to constantly be open to God sharing his heart with us so that we will be a people who would share his heart with others. What do we do about this? Well, certainly we want to tell people about Christ, but you see this on the screen. Engaging with people about God is a great thing, but engaging with God about people is the first thing. Crying out to God on behalf of those whose lives are broken, a world in need, and again, allowing him to share his heart with us. And so tonight we look at this idea of a passionate praying heart. Uh, The word passion means to have an intense driving feeling and a sense of being overwhelmed with emotion. But it's more than just emotion. It's, It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the depths of our soul that produces the kind of passion that we're going to read about right now. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, if you have your Bible, is about a man named Epaphras. He grew up in Colossae, and this is now reference of the letter Paul wrote to the Colossians. Uh, history tells us, as you study the biblical account, he, he met Paul in Ephesus, 100 miles away, where he heard the gospel, became a Christian, eventually went back to his hometown and planted a church. He reports back to Paul what's going on in the church and travels to Rome where Paul is in prison as he writes this. And so Paul now is greeting the Colossians with with Epaphras there with him and sending his love to them and saying something about this man that I think is compelling for us tonight. Verse 12 of Colossians chapter 4. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So tonight we're going to look for a moment at the model of one who prays with passion and trust that God will use that model to stir our hearts in a fresh way. So let's just see a few things about him. What do we know about his life? Well, we've already kind of tipped our hat on that. He says, Epaphras, who's one of you, he's a, he's a Colossian, you might say. He's a part of your church there in Colossae. Paul, again, was uh, referencing his ministry. He had done so earlier in the letter, and I want you to see that in Colossians chapter 1. He talks about Epaphras, and I think you see it on the screen. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see that? You can't see that, can you? They got it memorized, so it doesn't matter. That's why they're in the choir, all right? But he says, when we pray for you, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven, so you see faith, love, and hope, and of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as you learned it from who? From Epaphras. So he's really so grateful for Epaphras' ministry in this church. He calls him there, you see, a fellow servant. And this is something we know about Epaphras, both from this verse and the one we're looking at right now. The word for servant, both in the verse you saw on the screen and in chapter 4, verse 12, is doulos, literally translated slave. He says Epaphras is a slave. It's a word Paul used to love to describe himself, a slave of Jesus Christ. And he hardly used it about anyone else, and it tells us about how much he admired and appreciated this man's commitment to Jesus. I remember uh, Bob Dylan came out, the great gospel singer, came out with one gospel album years ago. And there was one song that it says, you got to serve somebody, right? You got to serve somebody. And Romans tells us, you got to choose whose slave you're going to be. You're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to Jesus Christ. And and understandably, that was not normally a, a word of honor 
but it depended on whose slave you were. And when you are a slave of Jesus Christ, you are literally free. We sang earlier, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free indeed. That's because we have been called to be slaves of Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to him. We obey him. As it says on the screen, one of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery and slavery leads to freedom. To be set free in Jesus Christ gives us a new master, a new Lord, one from whom we would derive life. And when we come into that position, we discover true freedom. So Epaphras was a slave of Jesus Christ. And I would say this, how he saw himself affected the way he prayed, as we're going to see. So what do we know about his prayers? Notice what it says next. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The Greek word for struggling, I'm not trying to show off, but I think you'll recognize it, agonizomai. What's that sound like? Agonize. Literally, he is agonizing in his prayers for you. He's striving. The word means to contend with adversaries. It means to fight, to strain, to enter a contest or a battle, to struggle. We might say Epaphras is in spiritual beast mode here, right? He, he is serious about this issue of the work of the gospel as we heard today. Historically, I think of a missionary who lived in the early 1700s named David Brainerd. He only lived at the age of 29. He suffered tuberculosis. Often on his missionary efforts, he would fall off of his horse, coughing up blood in such pain. He would often travel all night. His mission was to reach the Native Americans in the Northeast. And he was a man of prayer. He knew, again, that while talking to men about God is a great thing, talking about, to God about men is the first thing. He didn't even know their language. And he continued to pray, Lord, would you so fill me with the Holy Spirit that there will be an inexplicable transference of your gospel to the hearts of these people. Wow. He agonized in prayer, often all night long. Two stories that I love. One time he was preaching and the only translator he could find was a man who was so drunk he could hardly stand up. I always say God's only inventory is cracked pots. That's a really cracked pot, all right? So he's preaching through this guy, and scores were converted that night. Wow, how out of God. One particular night, he rode all night again to uh, a tribe in Pennsylvania, he arrived early that morning, and he saw the smoke coming up from their village, and again, he knew he needed to agonize in prayer. The story, as I read it, told of how he knelt in a clearing, and he began to pour out his heart on behalf of these folks who needed to hear of Jesus. Some of the, the young warriors from the tribe saw him, and they encircled him, uh, ready to, to kill this intruder when he finished praying, but they waited all morning. In fact, they waited into the early afternoon as Brainerd continued to pray. And the account says that as he was praying there and his body just pulsating with passion, he disturbed a nearby rattlesnake. I researched that. There are rattlesnakes in Pennsylvania that's encircled him, raised its head to strike, and then inexplicably put his head down and went back into his den. The natives realized they had just witnessed a miracle. They rushed to this white man and they asked him, please tell us about your miracle working God. Brainerd rose from his knees to lead many of them to Jesus Christ. Amen. Spiritual beast mode. 
And so I would suggest to you that Epaphras is kind of the New Testament David Brainerd. David Brainerd being a picture of what Epaphras was doing here. He was agonizing in prayer. But what was his goal? I want you to see his goal. Look, if you will, in verse 12. So that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Now, that may not sound that powerful, but think about it. It literally means to to stand firm, to be fully convinced, and to totally embrace God's will. What's the opposite of that? To be weak, to be vulnerable, to be defeated, to be confused, to feel lost. Tonight we're here and I think all of us can think of someone for whom we need to pray. People that work, perhaps our own children, our own grandchildren, who so desperately need to stand firm and confident in the will of God because we are at war and someone has to step into that place of intercession and plead for their souls and pray for God's grace and become a spirit-empowered avenue through whom God will work to minister to them the good news of the gospel. And so Epaphras is praying for them, as Paul prayed earlier in the letter, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom and understanding, to walk worthy of the Lord, to be strengthened with his power according to his glorious might. So that's Epaphras. That's what we know about him. In a sense, he's a model for us as to to what prayer could accomplish and, and how passionate the Spirit would enable us to be as we intercede for people that we love. But in the second part here, I want to talk about motivation because, you know, this could just be a really good guilt trip right now, right? Say, man, I I have a hard time praying five minutes. You want me to pray all night and sweat and, you know, cry out? And uh, Well, uh, there's more to it than that. There's something deep that can enable each and every one of us to experience this kind of passion in prayer. So I want you to see what is pretty evident from the New Testament text. Number one. What motivates a person who prays with passion is, again, a grasp of our supreme spiritual battle. A grasp of our supreme spiritual battle. Do you realize, friends, that every news headline represents a spiritual battle line? I mean, there's more than meets the eye going on in this world right now. And again, it's not ultimately just about the surface issues. It's about an enemy of our souls whose ultimate delight is the destruction of people so that they will not come to know the life of Jesus Christ. He delights in destroying families. He delights in disrupting churches. He delights in just bringing misery and pain. He came to steal, kill, and destroy, right? I often quote John, John Piper. He says it so well. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. And I think I told you last time I was here, Piper says, too many of us treat prayer like a a room service intercom to call up another pillow under our arm, you know, fresh refill of iced tea. But in reality, it is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in spiritual reinforcements. And so the very nature of this word, agonize, as you heard earlier, is struggle, it's battle, it's warfare. And we don't have to go very far to realize all the symptoms of the spiritual battle around us. The second thing that motivates us to have this kind of passion in prayer is a heart for the people that are entrusted to our care. A heart for the people that are entrusted to our care. That's what Epaphras is doing. 
He loved these people. He loved this church. He had modeled faith, hope, and love. He had given himself to them as a slave of Jesus Christ, his master pouring his life out for them. And that's what motivated him, that they would stand mature, that they wouldn't fail, they wouldn't be weak, they wouldn't be frail. And tonight as I stand here, I think of family members in my own family who are in battles, the battle of their life. And I look at my own heart, and I say, Lord, would you break my heart with what breaks yours? All of us are assigned by God not just to make a living, but to lead others to life. And he has put us where he has us so that we will take responsibility for the spiritual care of friends and work associates, family members, and others through passionate prayer. Some of you probably are saying, well, you know, this is nice, but, you know, this is just an example. I mean, good for that Epaphras guy, but, you know, it's not really telling me I have to do this. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, all right? So, uh, there is a text we're going to turn to in these final moments that actually commands us to pray like this. For Epaphras, it was the sense of warfare. It was his concern and care for the people that God had put in his life. But I want you to turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 15 and verse 30, just for a moment. Romans 15, 30. And I want you to see another motivation. As you're turning there, I think of Matthew West who, who wrote a song. Some of you may have heard it. It's called My Own Little World in terms of our concern for people around us. He wrote these words. He says, in my own little world, it hardly ever rains I've never gone hungry, always felt safe. I got some money in my pocket, shoes on my feet, in my own little world, population, me. <laughs> and then he goes on, he says, Father, break my heart for what breaks yours. Give me open hands and open doors. Put your light in my eyes and let me see that my own little world is not about me, right? So it is a sense of battle. It is a concern for people. But now in Romans 15, I want you to see it really ultimately as a high regard for our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to the Romans, and he is getting ready to, to complete a portion of his mission trip. And again, he knows that while he wants to talk to people about God, the most important thing is that they talk to God about people. So he says, I want you to pray for me. So Romans 15, 30, look what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers... And here are two motivations. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, you see these words again? To strive together with me. This word's actually sunagonism. In other words, together with me, I want you to do battle. I want you to strive in your prayers to God on my behalf. I love this because now this causes our motivation to take on a whole new dimension. Yes, it is because we're at war. Yes, it is because we care about the people in our lives. But now Paul says, I want you to strive. He says these words literally, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know we can't pray apart from Jesus, right? It's his death on the cross that makes a way to the Holy of Holies that we might have intimacy with God. We know he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. But the, the most literal rendering here is for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today you heard a great message about the gospel. And it is the gospel of who? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And Paul is saying the thing that's going to motivate you to agonize in prayer with me is that you regard Jesus. It's all about him. It's about the fame of his name. It's about the glory of his kingdom. And you must love Jesus so much that your heart is stirred to do battle in prayer. Your heart is stirred to agonize in prayer. Your heart is stirred for the glory of Jesus that everything you are and everything you have cries out to God for the glory of the Savior. Amen? So he says, I want you to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of Jesus. But I love what he says next. I also want you to agonize, I love this, because of a genuine love for the Holy Spirit. He says this, by the love of the Spirit. Now that could be translated by the love that the Spirit puts in our hearts, right? I mean, I love you, you know, but what's going to motivate me to agonize in prayer for you? The love of the Holy Spirit, something supernatural. I can't love you like that. I can't pray like that. But the Holy Spirit can, right? And it's our awareness of God's love toward us by the Holy Spirit. But again, this is so interesting. The most literal rendering in the original language here is our love for the Holy Spirit. So here's a survey. How many of you love the Holy Spirit? Yeah, amen, don't you? Now, I grew up in a church. We sang, oh, I love Jesus. I didn't even know if it was legal to love the Holy Spirit, right? But, but don't you love the Holy Spirit? I mean, the Holy Spirit makes us brand new, causes us to be born again, comforts us, leads us. He explains the Bible that he inspired to us so that we understand what it means and how to apply it. The Holy Spirit unites us. The Holy Spirit saves. He empowers. He witnesses through us when we're shy, when we're embarrassed, when we don't feel like doing it. He manifests the fruit of his life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, I want you to agonize in prayer because there is a power that is so indescribable, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you, and you need to love the Holy Spirit. You need to love what he can do. And it's not just getting on your prayer, say, oh, man, Henderson told me I've got to agonize. I'm going to pinch myself till I cry. No, it's not that. It's, oh, I love what the Holy Spirit can do. I love the power and person of the Spirit of God. So I'm going to ask him to do in me a, a level of passion and prayer and exhibit in me the very heart of the Holy Spirit for people. And so Paul says it's your love for the Holy Spirit. So, so we've kind of seen what motivated Epaphras. It was a battle. And it's his care for the people that God's put in his life. We see what Paul tells us about being motivated to pray like this. It's our, our regard for Jesus, and it's our love for the Holy Spirit. But I also want us to see finally what it is about our very Savior that should motivate us to pray with passion. And that is a brokenness over the devastating effects of sin. When David sinned, a whole string of complicated situations, as you know, and he finally came to terms with God. He said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. I remember an old song by Passion that said, break our hearts, O God, break our hearts. For the sin in our lives, break our hearts. For the sin in our land, break our hearts. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53 that he was a, some of you remember this, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, right? Now, what's that mean? Does that mean he walked around depressed all the time? You know, oh, woe is me. No. 
That means when he thought about the mission that he had from the Father, over the seriousness of the sin and rebellion of mankind, that would require the blood of the perfect Son of God and the consequences of our rebellion, that he was indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see this a number of times in his life, a few verses as we begin to close here. In Luke 19, 41, Jesus came into Jerusalem just before he cleansed the temple a second time. And it says, and as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Las Vegas has a nickname. What is it? Let's see. Uh, oh, that like Jesus, we would weep. I remember my very first sermon I preached at the age of 16 on this text. The title was, Must Jesus Weep Again Over Our Rebellion, Our Sin? I preached it in a town called Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. If you can't preach your first sermon in truth or consequence, you might as well give it up, right? Believe the truth or suffer the consequence. It's pretty simple, right? But Jesus' heart breaks over the rebellion and sin and rejection of people of his gospel. And the ramifications of what sin will continue to do to destroy their lives should they not believe. I think of uh, a verse you see on the screen as well. If you want to start memorizing scripture, start with this one, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Say that with me. Jesus wept. Good job. You're well on your way, all right? But you know the story. Lazarus has died. Martha and Mary have pled with him to come, and he finally arrives, and he weeps. Oh, certainly he weeps because he feels bad for them. Certainly he weeps because of the loss of Lazarus. But this, again, is a picture of the consequences of sin and its devastation in people's lives, which is why he says, here's good news. I'm the resurrection and the life. And so on one hand, he is proclaiming the most glorious truth they could hear. But on the other hand, he weeps because he understands that all of this is the consequence of the sin and rebellion of the human heart. We see again as he comes to the garden before going to the cross, Luke 22, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And Hebrews 5, uh, 5 says it this way, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It's not your normal prayer sermon, is it? <laughs> so I just want to come and get a little, you know, tidbit about how to have a better prayer life, right? And we do want that. But as I look at the scripture and I look at the heart of Jesus and I look at how he prayed and I look at what Paul understood when he was compelling people to pray for him and the mission of the gospel and I look at the example of Epaphras who agonized and was striving in prayer for the souls of those in his life. I realize, Lord, I need you to share your heart with me at a deeper level. I, I, I need to sing that song once again. If only I could see the world through your eyes, I would, I would live differently, Lord. The word passion, as you know, is also descriptive of the suffering and the death of Christ, the passion of the Christ, and again, this agony of heart that he experienced. So tonight, I want to remind you, I've said it already, but I want to remind you again, prayer is not just us sharing our heart with God. It is God sharing his heart 
with us so that we will understand the battle that we're in, that we will have a heart for people, that we will have a high regard for Christ, a love for the work of the Spirit, and a brokenness over the devastating effects of sin. Hillsong wrote a song, a little line in it goes like this. I'm going to sing it. you mind? I like to sing when I preach. It's okay. You may know it. Sing it with me. I don't know. Just a little line. It goes like this. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom cause. As I walk from earth into eternity. Ruminate on that for a moment. Break my heart as you... Thank you, choir. I'll join you next Sunday, all right? But anyway, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything, everything I am. Mind, will, emotion for your kingdom cause. Casting Crowns wrote a song that says it this way. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to a world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners. Some of you may know this final line. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. So, yes, this is emotion, but it's more than that. It's a heart that is ruled by the Holy Spirit, a heart that is consumed with the person and purposes of Jesus Christ, and a heart that is focused on the need of others. Awaken us, Lord. I'm going to close in an unusual way. I brought another preacher in tonight to finish up. He's in heaven now. He was on earth when he recorded this, though, just so you know, okay? David Wilkerson founded Team Challenge. He pastored uh, Times Square Church in New York. And a little excerpt I want you to listen to as we prepare to close and pray on anguish, agony, striving. And may God awaken our hearts to what it really means to pray with passion. Let's watch this together. And I look at the whole religious scene today and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony, 
of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive. All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. And he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now, folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned. And I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world. That there's such a coldness sweeping the land. Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion, blind to lukewarmness, blind to the mixture that's creeping in. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, has what I just said convicted you at all? There's a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that you, that begins to interest you. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. And I want to tell you something. I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching, if it is not born in anguish, if it has not been born by the Holy Spirit, where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees, took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God, I know now Oh, my God, do I know it. Until I'm in agony. Until I have been anguished over it. And all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do. Where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing and they're going to hell? You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you, you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing your heart, His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. 
The Holy Spirit's being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness and something has to be done. There's going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. Lord, there's some need to get this altar and confess. I am not what I was. I am not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I've been, I wanted it easy. I didn't want to be happy. But Lord, true joy comes. True joy comes out of anguish. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money, I don't care what kind of new house there is. Absolutely nothing physical can give you joy. It's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey Him and take on His heart. Build the walls around your family. Build the walls around your own heart. Make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that's what we desire.